If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. A few weeks ago, as uh, we were going through the book of Ephesians in our uh, prayer meeting, I touched on uh, this particular theme and uh, several had found it uh, of help to them and uh, I thought it would be good to expand uh, some of those thoughts in a fuller uh, message tonight. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, uh, we have the uh, Apostle Paul letting us know that he is going to pray and uh, for the people of God there in Ephesus, and not just that he's going to pray, uh, but how he is going to pray. And so let me pick up the reading at verse 14, and I'll read through uh, to the end of the chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us uh, better to learn what it is to pray and to pray for one another in accordance with your revealed will. Our Father, we do ask that that which the apostle asked of you 2,000 years ago for his beloved brethren in Ephesus would be our portion tonight. Uh, aid us and help us. Unto that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the great benefits and blessings of being a part of a local body of believers is the support of the church in prayer. When I say that I imagine that there are, uh, uh, that we are thinking of the times when the body comes alongside us, in our trials and our tribulations, when they come alongside in a time of felt need and they, and they say, I'm praying for you. When you say I'm going and undergoing a hardship, it's reassuring to know that the Lord's people are taking you and your concerns before the throne of grace. Or perhaps you are not just undergoing a time of trial, uh, but you have some event coming up. Uh, there's something that's on your heart and you need help. And you say to the people of God, would you pray for us as, whatever it is, as we travel, uh, as we look for a new job, as we uh, take this test, whatever it is. And again, it's a comfort and a blessing to know that the Lord's people pray. It's a comfort and a blessing, and it's biblical. It is right and good that God's people pray for one another and that we take the various concerns of our lives and hearts before the Lord. If I were to do a sermon on corporate prayer, uh, I would focus on uh, two aspects of it. First of all, uh, that we pray with one another. That's one aspect of corporate prayer. We do that as a church. And then that we pray for one another as a church. And if I were to do a series on this aspect of the Christian life, the second aspect, the, the church uh, as we pray for one another, uh, I, I would highlight three things. I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm just telling you if I were, this is what I would do. I would deal with the fact that we should pray for one another. Secondly, I would ask the question, why should we pray for one another? That is, why, why do people in this congregation need prayer? And then finally, how should we pray for one another? 
why should we pray? Why, why do we pray for one another? What is it in the Bible that would say that we ought to pray for one another? Well, I, I would open up, again, if I were doing a series on this, I'd probably begin by opening up Ephesians 6 and verses 17 and 18. This is the conclusion of the section that we generally call the armor of God. And though I believe Paul drops the imagery of the armor, I think he is continuing on with this subject of spiritual warfare. So he says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, verse 18, praying always. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication, for all the saints. So I would found my exhortation or my uh, thesis that we should pray for one another on a text like this. God's people should pray for all the saints. Now we'd ask the question, why should you pray for all the saints? Is there anybody in this congregation that doesn't need prayer? Is there anybody in this congregation that's doing so well, thriving so robustly, that they do not need the intervention of God granted in answer to the believing prayer of God's people? Well, we say, of course not, brother. And, 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 and why? Well, for one thing, all the saints, every, every member of this congregation is striving to serve the Lord in a cursed world. All of them, every single person in this room who is following the Lord Jesus is in the midst of some conflict and some warfare. Now, some you see it more than others, but all of them have struggles. There's not a member of this congregation that isn't struggling in some way. All need help, all need guidance, all need strength, all need grace and we believe that these things, again, are given by God, that they are a supernatural supply and that they're given by God in answer to regular believing prayer. But now the question comes, how do we pray for one another? And that is to say, what are the kinds of requests or needs that are upon our hearts? So we go to one another every once in a while. Maybe uh, sometimes we're, we've gotten together with somebody and we've enjoyed some fellowship. And maybe at the end of that, uh, we say to them, what are some ways that I can pray for you? Or we may phrase it, what is it that you need? Well, what's often the answer to that? It's normally something temporary and pressing Something that uh, is on our hearts for time. It's a crisis. It's a trial. So I might say to one of you, again, I'd say, so how are you doing at this time? Some of you, again, in spite of all that I just said, you might say, you know, overall, I'm, I'm doing well. I, I don't really have any pressing needs. I can't really think of anything right now. But, but thank you. I mean, just generally that the Lord would... Help me, Lord, the Lord would be with me. But if you ask the Apostle Paul, do you pray for the saints? And he'd say, oh, yes, I do. And if you were to say to him, how do you pray for all the saints? Well, I pray for their upcoming exam. I'm praying for their doctor visit. I'm praying for some of them have, a, one of them's having really bad hip pain lately. I've been praying for them. Now, he may well have done that, but that's not how he reveals how he prays. Let me ask you this question. The Lord Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. And if we were to say to the Lord Jesus when we get to heaven, Lord, thank you for your intercessory work. Could you tell me some of the ways that you prayed for me? And he said, well, I was praying for you when you were 16 and you took your driver's test. I was praying for you in regard to the difficult job market that we're in. I was praying for you that you would find a spouse or that you would find a new house. Now again, look, 
I don't want to make light of those things. Those things weigh us down. They, they press upon us. But do you think that is the burden of Christ in heaven for his people? Was it the burden of the apostle Paul when he prayed? I'm asking that rhetorically, so let me answer it. No. How do we know that? Well, because we have a record of Paul's prayer requests. We have a record throughout the epistles of the way that he prayed for God's people. And I assert that we can learn something from this. And that we can learn how to take the people of God regularly before the throne of grace. I'm not saying drop your emergency prayers. But I'm going to argue that there is something in these prayers that when we understand them, that they help us to understand our genuine needs as a Christian, because sometimes we don't know what we really need. So let me tonight deal with one of these prayer requests. And it is the prayer request that's found here in Ephesians chapter 3, and it's summed up in these words, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. I want to begin uh, by looking, and I've already started to allude to this, I want to begin tonight by looking at the importance of this prayer. So again, if I were to say to some of you, what do you need right now? Or how can I pray for you? Or how can I pray for the family, your family? If I were to ask, uh, what do you perceive to be the needs of your church at this particular time and at this particular hour? I, I get asked that somewhat regularly. I get a text or I get a phone call or an email from a pastor of another church. And they say, we're going to pray for your church. How can we pray for you right now. So let me give you my answer recently. We have some medical needs and, and I mentioned particularly we're praying how we're praying for Gus. Would you please pray for us for Gus Joubert? I also ask people to pray that I, as I pursue we have some marriages that, that are in trouble and asking the Lord to intervene and then for the Lord to work in our young people, for God to convert our young people. That's, that's very often what, what, at least what I have said over the last uh, number of months. And if you think about right now, and if we were to have a conversation about the church and the needs of the church living in America at this time, if we have our head out of the sand and we're looking around at all the things that face us and that may face us as congregations and as the people of God and the fear and anxiety that many of God's people have at this hour, whether that fear and anxiety is based upon real or perceived dangers or threats, whatever the case might be, or as we consider, as some of us have had conversations, some of us old guys about the state of the economy and how it's uh, affecting our young people and their ability to thrive financially and to have some of the things that many of us enjoyed in times past, and you think to yourself, well, what do we need? Well, we need wisdom and we need grace and we need repentance and we need God's blessing and success and perseverance. And the Apostle Paul comes, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray that you all understand how much Jesus loves you. <laughs> well, Paul, I, not that I don't appreciate that, Paul. But don't you know what's happening? Don't you know the struggles of my family right now? I, I do, and I'm praying that all of you will understand how much Jesus loves you. What were the needs of the church in Ephesus? What would come upon them in relatively short order? Persecution was going to come, wasn't it? They were a church that was living in a moral cesspool. Read the book of Ephesians. 
and see the darkness that they had come out of, the pollution of soul, of society. We were touching on some issues of sexual ethics in recent days. Folks, we haven't seen anything in comparison to what churches saw in days gone by. Ephesus was full of idolatry, full of immorality. Some of the church were dealing with chronic sin issues. Just can't read it and you understood. Some were lying, some were stealing. Some had rage issues, bitterness, lust, immorality, fornication, adultery seemed to be an issue at that time. So Paul had to issue warnings. There were needs concerning spiritual warfare, marriages and family. And yet, what does he pray? I want you to know, I want God to show you how much Jesus loves you. That's not all that he prays. He prayed in chapter 1 that they would know the hope of their calling. That they would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that they would know the exceeding greatness of God's power, which he works in those who believe the power likened unto the power that he gave when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named and placed him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's how he prayed. But Paul, that's all spiritual gobbledygook. Man, I'm living in a real world with real problems and real crisis. I know. And that's why I want you to know the love of God in Christ. As you face what you face, as you deal with sin and broken relationships, as you struggle with an immoral world which pulls at you or that mocks you, I believe that what you need to grow and to flourish and to labor and to love others is an overwhelming sense of the love of God in Christ for you. Now, I want to try to prove that. Consider, secondly, we're looking at the importance, because I, I just want to show you that this matters I'm hoping to convince you, because there may be some that are still a little bit reticent. You know, like, I never pray for anybody in this way. And if I were given a list of things to pray for other people, I don't know that I would have this on my list. Well, I want to convince you by the end of this that it be on your list. So let's consider the objects of this prayer. Note the language. He says here uh, again that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. So who are the objects of this prayer? You and all the saints. All the people of God. This is not for new Christians. It's for old Christians as well. It's not just for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It's not just for the women. It's for the men. It is universal. That is to say, again, there is not a saint, not a child of God now or ever who was not in great need for God himself by the spirit to place into the soul this knowledge. I'm praying this because it's what you need. And all of us need it. We sang tonight, we alas forget too often what a friend we have above. It was that Newton, right? John Newton wrote that a couple hundred years ago or more. He felt it. He forgot it. And so in song, he wanted to stir up the people of God to this remembrance. We are so susceptible to forget this or to see how much it matters or means to us. So you hear some child of God pray, Lord, I want to be pure. I don't want to sin anymore in this way. I want to provide for my family. I want to have integrity or I want to have success. Again, all good and well. But could it be that the answer to some of those prayers is found in something deeper? In your darkest moments, when you feel most alone or crushed or perplexed, when you feel that you are an utter failure, 
when others have disappointed you, when providence is at its most dark and confusing, when your home, your job, your marriage, or your financial security that you desire are not what they ought to be. And let me tell you that when you are at your most crushed or perplexed and when providence is most dark, if your job, your home, or your marriage is the solid ground beneath your feet that helps you to endure those things, they cannot bear the weight of it. And again, I'm not saying that they don't matter. It's wonderful to have a good marriage and a nice home and a good job and financial security, but those things cannot be the solid ground that you build your life on. They're not the solid rock. But if I can know when I am afraid that the Savior in heaven loves me and, as we will see, loves me indescribably, If I can know when I am wounded and confused and failing that his love never fails, then I can press on. And the point here again is that all the saints, regardless of their circumstances, need this. So let's turn now to consider the essence of this prayer. And I want to consider several things under this heading. I want to consider, first of all, the reality of the love of Christ. You see, for this prayer to mean anything, for it to have any substance, this has to be real. And it has to be powerful. And it has to be glorious. There used to be a show called Let's Make a Deal. I don't know if they still have it, but some of you will remember it. Contestants would come out and they'd do stupid games and, and they would have these doors Uh, door number one, door number two, door number three. And and what was behind that door? Well, one of those doors might have a new car and behind another door might be a can of beans. But the door looks the same for all other than the number on there. I'll get the flashing lights and the drum roll and all the excitement. And you're wondering, did I choose something good or something lousy? What's under the box? So Christmas is coming up and as long as a box remains Closed, it can be almost anything. And all your imagination can go, what did they get me? Oh, is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? And then you open it up. And again, you're either delighted or disappointed or whatever the case might be. If I say to you that, that I want you to know the love of Christ and that this is so important in your life. Well, first of all, it better be real. That is, God better be able to answer this prayer. It's something that you ought to be able to know, that is, and we'll see, to experience. And that the experience of it must be so wonderful and so transformative that it allows us to see why the Apostle Paul makes such a deal of this. The love of Jesus for us must be so great and so sweet and so tender and and so moving that if God grants it to us and gives it to us in answer to our prayer, that we would find such comfort and such joy in it. But now consider, secondly, the knowability of this love. What does Paul mean when he says here that his prayer is, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Now, you all know how the text goes, because he's going to go on to say, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So he's going to say, I want you to comprehend it. Uh, That's in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he says, I want you to know it. What does Paul mean? Well, let's remind ourselves that this is not a sermon on the love of Christ. It is a prayer for you to know or comprehend the love of Christ. So what I'm getting at is this. Paul is not referring to mere intellectual apprehension. 
He is not saying that this is something that, that they simply affirm to be true based upon a few verses. Therefore, because we believe the Bible, okay, Jesus does love us and that it's wonderful. He's asking for something more than the fruit of exegesis. I want to explain what I mean by that. So again, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that it is without error? Say, yes, I do. Do you believe that this book does tell you, as the little kid's hymn says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know the Bible does tell you that? So, in a sense, well, all of us know that. All of us sing it. We sing all kinds of songs about the deep, deep love of Jesus and then perhaps go from this place sad, alone, and miserable. So we know it. But Paul's wanting something more and deeper than that. He's not simply saying, do you acknowledge it? And you'll note here that Paul is not saying, tell you what I'm going to do. You all have a need to understand this. I'm going to come back to Ephesus. Remember, he pastored there for three years. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a 10 or 15 part series on the love of Christ. And um, we're going to put it in a nice binder and uh, you'll all will be able to have it downloaded and listen to it over and over again. And, and now you'll know and comprehend the love of Christ. Now, he's not saying I'm going to tell you about it. He's saying I want God in answer to prayer to work this truth in you. I'm praying that God would grant this to you. Again, this knowledge is not gained from the preacher. And I have to remind myself, because I'm a preacher, that sometimes I say, well, I want to preach this into you. And Paul says, I want to pray it into you. There's all the difference in the world in those two things. It is not, again, what we call mere book learning or intellectual fact. It's not just, I'm going to give you a book that I've read on the love of Christ, and this is going to answer this. And now that may help. It may indeed help. Again, it does need to be rooted in things like truth and exegesis. But it's not just because it's been declared and in a sense laid hold of intellectually. I'm not embarrassed to say that what Paul is getting at here is something that you feel. Something When he says that you would know it and comprehend it, he's talking about something that you would experience in your soul. I believe what the Apostle Paul has in mind would be a believer coming up and saying, Paul, I don't know if you've been praying for me, but the love of Christ has become so sweet to me. It comforts me. It has produced a level of security and joy and peace. If I may use uh, uh, an expression I don't think I use much, if at all, it has begun to dazzle me. It has stabilized me. It has allowed me to interpret all that goes on in my life, especially when providence is dark. Because my temptation when providence is dark is to doubt that God sees me, knows me, or cares about me. That's a question asked several times in the word of God. Lord, don't you care? Do you not care? Well, if you knew that he loved you so indescribably, then you'd know, well, whatever else is going on, I know he knows me. He sees me. He has fashioned my days. He's sovereign. Yes, all those things are comforting. But to know that he loves you, that the Jesus who left heaven and lived among men and who died on the cross and rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he knows my name and intercedes for me and that he loves me and is coming for me. What does that do for my soul? Now I've talked about that it is knowable. Now I want us to see that it is inexplicable and beyond all comprehension. This is an interesting, Paul is, is giving some play on words here. This love, he says, is beyond knowledge. I want you to know that which is beyond knowledge. Can you know something that's beyond knowledge? Well, you can experience something that's beyond knowledge. And as we consider this, I want us to look at this in two ways. First of all, that it is beyond comprehension in its essence and then it's beyond comprehension in its objects 
Paul had said earlier of the power of God that uh, it is, uh, how does he phrase it? He says uh, that you would, uh, as he prays for them to experience, he calls it the exceeding greatness of his power. And that term there for exceeding is a, is a word that, that has the idea of, of taking something and casting it as far as you can. And so his power is great. It's mega. That's the word that is used there. It's mega power, but it is exceedingly mega power. That is, again, again, it's a power that we, we can scarce put into dimensions that we can lay hold of it and look at and say that I know it. This love that he is getting at is vast. And he utilizes dimensional language to help us. So he talked about width and length, depth and height. All right, so how wide is the love of Christ? Anybody know? 42 feet? 42 miles wide? How high or how long is the love of Christ? How deep is the love of Christ? How, how high is the love of Christ? You see, we sometimes use spatial language to convey to somebody how much we love them. Hold your hands out, whatever it is. You know, we, we try to use spatial language to help us to comprehend. And, and again, we, we, we could throw around numbers. But how do we really wrap our mind around them? So I'm going to give you a little illustration. My brain likes these things. I'm sorry if you don't, but I'm going to go ahead and give it. All right, so how big is the solar system? All right, so I'm going to give you a little, little, little lesson here. How about that? We're going to use this to scale, roughly. If this is the sun, How big would the earth be and how far away would the earth be? Well, it would be about the size of a grain of sand. And it would be over maybe where Daryl is. If the sun's this big, 93 million miles there. Neptune is out in the parking lot. There's a star. Does anybody know the name of the nearest star to the sun? There, I knew you would. <laughs> I have it in my notes. Daryl's going to, no, I didn't have that, but I, <laughs> Proxima Centauri. Proxima means nearest. So that's a good way to, Proxima Centauri, nearest star to our sun. It's 4.2 light years from the sun. All right, so if this is our sun and the earth is a grain of sand in Daryl's hand and Neptune's out in the parking lot, where is Proxima Centauri? I'm going to give it, it's, it's in Oklahoma City. It's 750 miles away. That's, how, that's with the sun being this size. How do we describe such vastness? So the word of God says this sometimes. For instance, you read in Psalm 36 and verse 5, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Because that's, you look up and say, that's where it goes. That's how high it is. Your mercy, we read in Psalm 57, 10, your mercy reaches unto the heaven and your truth unto the clouds. Psalm 103 Verse 11, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Well, how high is that in the heavens? Is it the sun, 93 million miles away? Is it Proxima Centauri? But you get the idea. God's faithfulness rises. It's just this high. How, so how long, how deep is it? Can you imagine being dropped into the middle of the, we'll go with the Pacific. In the Pacific Ocean, and you have been tasked to measure the ocean. So here's how they're going to help you to do it. Now, it would be cruel to give you a ruler that's a foot long. So what they're going to give you is a yardstick. All right, a 25-foot tape measure. So you have a diving mask, you have a, a tank, flippers, a flashlight, and a 25-foot 
tape measure, and it's your job to say how deep and how wide the ocean is. So can you know that? Can, can you know and comprehend that it's deep and vast? Can you be there in the middle of it and say, look, I can't measure how... I don't know that I need to measure. Do I really need to tell you how many feet it is to know that it's overwhelming? And how far it is. I I could never swim there. I could never get there. I can't see the land. I know it's wide. And if I were down in the trenches to know it is high above me. See, this is the idea. You can know something and comprehend something that in a sense as you stood, and again, I realize, yes, you can, somebody out there had, had how many cubic whatever is in, the, is in the ocean and how many granules of salt. I'm sure somebody has it figured out somewhere. I, I know, you know. But, but, but be overwhelmed by it. That's the idea. What wondrous love is this, oh, my soul. What love brought him down to man? What love compelled him to become a man and to keep the law and to suffer under the curse of the law? What love drove him to the cross? In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. More on that in a moment. But let's just say he's talking there about the cross. That he would give his life, that he would pay the price A price for what? For sins. Now, some of you can imagine parting with a great amount of wealth to obtain something wonderful. So Jesus tells the story about a man who who sold all that he had so he could get a pearl of great price. Or we could tell you a story Perhaps about somebody who loves another so that they lay down their life for them. If, 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 if my wife or my kids or even a good number of you, I'm not going to say all of you. And don't ask which ones I wouldn't, but no, I'm just, <laughs> you know, but I might lay down my life or give a kidney or give, give part of my lung or part of my liver. And if you need any fat, I could certainly give you that. But, you know, do, do something that would be costly and perhaps even lose your life. But if somebody said, Jim, would you do that for a plate of garbage? Would you do that for some cotton candy? Would you sell your house for cotton candy? Well, no. Would you lay down your life? And would you lay down your life for your enemy? Would you lay down your life for that person who hates you? Would you pay the price for sins that sickened and offend you? What love would cause the holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, Son of God, to enter into our humanity and to, in the language of Paul, become sin for us, that we through him might become the righteousness of God? But not only that, in this love, he calls us his friends and his children. So that John says, behold, what manner of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Behold it, marvel at it. What love that compels him to patiently bear with us, to not give up on us. You ever given up on anybody? You ever have a friendship or relationship? Either somebody's given up on you or you've just given up on them because... It's not worth the effort. What if he did that with us? He patiently bears with us. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. It's a love that intercedes and that pleads. It's a love from which nothing can separate, nothing on earth, under the earth. No heavenly power can separate us from it. It's a love that says to the likes of us, I want them to be where I am that they may see and share in my glory. And though touched on, this love is amazing, not only in regard to its essence, but I'm touching on this now, its object. So I did want to say this. Again, do you know people that you deem worthy, perhaps, of your love and some worthy of your greatest love? 
your love for them, your, your, your enjoyment of them, your delight in them is fully explainable. It's not hard for me to love my grandkids. It takes really no effort at all. You look at that, you watch me carrying them around or whatever. It's like, hey, you're enjoying yourself, aren't you? It's enjoyable to love them. It's not enjoyable to love everybody. What if you saw the object of your love spending time with one that you deemed unworthy or unacceptable? Somebody coarse and vile, uncouth, loud, obnoxious. You ever think to yourself, how could you love them? Why do you like them? Why do you want to be around them? And how is it, brethren, that one who dwells in light, inexpressible and full of glory, would love those who are energized by the prince of the power of the air, who were dead in their sins and trespasses, for by grace you have been saved. The greatness of his love, which he loved even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we saw that recently. And Paul prayed that we, who are the objects of that love, formerly dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies and all of the rest, would be overwhelmed by this. That we would believe it. Not believe that you deserve it, but that you would believe it. Enjoy it though you cannot express the fullness of it. Though you cannot contain it and put it into a nice, easily explicable box that you can put under a theological microscope. Ah, I get it now. Know that he should love me. Now consider our confidence in this prayer. I'll be brief here. Why should we be confident in this prayer? Well, at least three reasons come to mind. One is that it's recorded in the Bible. We know that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. I have reason to believe this is his will then, do we not? It's a confidence that's rooted in God himself. Because it's true. Again, we are not asking God to fool us or to trick us. We're not asking God to make us feel good about ourselves. Do you love me? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. That's not what it's about. We are asking him to make the truth known in our inner man. Understand. But thirdly, we should pray this with confidence because of the closing verses of this chapter. So we all love these words, I think, verse 20 and uh, on. Now, now uh, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all, we ask or think according to the power that works in us. It's a great, great promise, isn't it? But you know what we always say when you want to do your exegesis, what's the context? What prayer in particular is Paul talking about? Us to be strengthened with might in the inner man, to be rooted and grounded in love, to comprehend the love of Christ unto the end that we would be filled with the fullness of God. He says, now you pray that. And God is able to answer that in ways that you can scarcely imagine. And as he does that, he says, verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that is to believe that an answer to this prayer, and we're going to get into this now in a moment, an answer to this prayer, God would receive glory in our lives in a way that he won't. If we are not strengthened with power in the inner man, if we're not rooted and grounded in love, if we do not have some knowledge and comprehension of the love of Christ for us. So finally, tonight, the effect of this prayer. And just quickly, individually and corporately. Individually. What if all of us began to pray for one another in this way? And God did, according to his promise here, began to do this in ways that are just really wonderful. What might we begin to see? Might it not aid us in our fight against sin? When Pastor Charlie was teaching Sunday school a couple of weeks ago and talking about some of the gross sins that enslave so many of our young men and young women, it's not just young, young and, young and older. And he said, it's not enough simply to say, cut it out. 
cut it off, cast it out. You need to have what the, one of the old writers called the expulsive power of a new affection. You've got to replace it with something better. What if in the moment of some overwhelming feeling at that moment, some overwhelming lust that you feel compelled and you want to run to your computer or something else, what if at that moment in answer to somebody's prayer in another part of the city, you began to be aware of the love of God in Christ for you? How much the Lord loves you. Might that not wither the strength of that sin? What about our desire for holiness and for communion with the Lord? What about our general enjoyment of the Christian life? What of a greater anticipation of heaven? What of a comfort in trial? And then corporately, what if when we gathered together next Lord's Day and a hymn that speaks of the love of God in Christ, and yes, it's singable and it's one of those hymns we can really do with gusto and the piano's played well and we do a good job singing it. But what if in the midst of it, there was a corporate apprehension of the truth of it? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. What if, what, what if that hit us? What if as we gathered together and as we heard the word and as we sang and as we prayed and as the preaching went on and it was explaining one element of God's glory or another, we entered in with such a relish, not because the preachers gifted and the songs were good or whatever, but because the Savior was not distant. And you're thinking, I'm hearing about somebody that I know and that I love and that knows and loves me. I love to hear people talk about people that I love. In certain circles, so some, I've got these little circles. So if I go to Asbury, people know Dave. And if I said, I'm Dave's dad, oh, I love Dave. If I go to Columbia, Missouri, and uh, I said, I'm Lizzie's dad, oh, I love Lizzie. I go over to Spencer Christian here where my wife taught for a little while, and if I knocked on the door and they were looking at me all suspiciously, and I said, I'm Becky's husband, well... She's well-loved. I'm Olivia's dad. I'm Aaron's dad. Whatever it is. I, I, I would, and because, and, and then to, to see the joy people, oh, I love them. They do this. They're so great. They're so, you know, that, that really feels wonderful. And I love to hear people talk about people who love me. You know, if, if I went and one of them said, you know, oh, Beck, Beck spoke highly of you or your kids really love you. See, it adds a dimension, doesn't it? It adds a, a camaraderie and a joy. If we gathered here Lord's Day by Lord's Day and entered into the presence of the Lord with the conviction that this God that we sing to now is not a distant deity and it's not just that it's right. And of course, it's right. And he's worthy of this worship. But if we came with the knowledge that this God loves us in Christ indescribably and inseparably, might it not, not affect how we hear the word and the anticipation with which we gather? And finally, might it not help us to love one another as we see how much the Lord loves them? You see, whenever you're struggling to love somebody that Jesus loves, remember that he's not just tolerating them. He loves them so far in excess of any love that we could comprehend. And so you look at them and say, you know, I struggle with them, but he doesn't. For them, I left heaven. For them, I fulfilled the law. For them, I laid down my life. For them, I rose from the dead. For them, I ascended to heaven. For them I intercede, and one day I will receive them unto myself. Now, I believe that all of us are designed to want love. 
that we want people to love us. And sometimes it doesn't matter who they are, as long as somebody out there will love us. And some will look and look in some very bad places and among some that may seem not particularly helpful. But if you feel accepted by them and you feel that they're with you and for you, it, it changes the dynamic. There is one love that is a love above all others. And I've shared before in my own personal testimony, my personal testimony, I would probably get thrown out of some reformed places for this. My personal testimony is not that as I heard the word, I came under a, a crushing sense of the conviction of my sins. I saw what a wretched sinner that I was, and I saw Christ as my only hope. Now, again, I saw all of that. But if you ask me, why did you come to Christ? It's because I desperately wanted the love of a father in heaven. And what drew me, he drew me with cords of love. It was his kindness and his goodness that led me to repentance. And I can stand, and sometimes it's good and right and appropriate to come and say, if you will not believe, you must. Jesus said, you need to fall on the rock. If you fall on the rock, you'll be broken. If the rock falls on you, you'll be crushed to pieces. And those are threats in God's words. But when you fall on him and, and, and you're broken, you're broken under the end of being healed. And he's calling you to come to experience the joy of sins forgiven, hope of eternal life, and the promise that you now are loved with the greatest love you will ever experience. The greatest love in all the world is not the love of a husband for his wife. It's not the love of a mother for the child or a grandpa for his grandkids. The greatest love in all the world, the incomprehensible, inexplicable love is that the God of heaven should come to this world and love people who were his enemies. That's the love that I pray all of us will experience. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together in your house and among your people. We do pray that you would write upon our hearts the knowledge of this love. And Father, when we consider how deep and how wide, how long this love is, we know that we can't comprehend it, we can't explain it. It's beyond the ability of our hearts and minds to put it into words. But Father, we can grasp that it is great. We can grasp that it is wonderful. We can grasp that it is real. And so Father, show this love to all of your servants, some and our congregation need it so desperately right now. And Father, when we ask for them to do better and to be healed and to, to know joy, this is ultimately what we're asking. Father, infuse into their hearts a fresh sense of the wonder of your love. Grant it, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake.